Hi listeners, Rob here. Welcome to our holiday season classic episode series. Now the show has been around a while longer, we are able to dig further into the past when selecting these classics. We're now considering episodes that are more than two years old, so unless you've been a subscriber for a long time, there's a pretty good chance you haven't heard the ones we have coming up. Alternatively, if you listen to them when they came out, a large part of what's in them might have skipped your mind in the meantime, making a repeat listen almost as fun as it was the first time around. Our first classic re-release is my interview with Professor Cass Sunstein from June 2019. It's primarily about Cass's 2019 book, How Change Happens, which aims to explain how social norms can flip abruptly, and how to encourage that to happen in specific cases. The interview ranks 5th out of 120 so far by number of listeners in its first month, and 2nd out of 120 for the average percentage of the episode that people finish listening to. One comment from a member of our advisory group was, this was one of the podcasts I enjoyed the most so far, so more of these please. The lecture in the beginning was crystal clear and stuck in my brain immediately, and the elaborations afterwards were illuminating. A second wrote, big fan of these sorts of how the world works episodes. I think they provide insights that are actionable across pretty much all jobs. And of course, Professor Sunstein is clearly super smart and astute. This was entertaining and thought-provoking content. Cass is an incredibly busy guy, so I was only able to get a single hour with him. And so to avoid wasting time, having him repeat the basic thesis of his book, which he's done plenty of times already, Kieran Harris put together an abridged version of a lecture Cass gave at the Harvard Law School Library, which outlined all his key points. Thanks again to Harvard College for allowing us to use that presentation. That lasts for 38 minutes, and we've stuck it at the start, which means we can dive straight into questioning how accurate his model is and what implications it has for people who want to have a positive social impact. One final thing, Spotify just added the ability to rate podcasts a couple of days ago, and it would be great if you could give us a boost on there by giving us a star rating this week. Of course, if you're using Apple Podcasts, you can also rate us on there and leave a written review as well. Those ratings and reviews really do encourage people who are encountering the show for the first time to actually give it a shot. And of course, we also read every one of them. So if you'd like to give us a Christmas present, a review on whatever app you listen to podcasts on would be a very thoughtful one. Okay, without further ado, here's our classic episode with Cass Sunstein. Okay, so uh, the title I wanted to give for this book was Why Societies Go Whoosh, W-H-O-O-S-H, but the publisher said no. That would be too obscure and undignified. Uh, This is also uh, 25 years in the making. So a long, long time ago, I did a first draft of what is now Chapter 3, which is about how law changes social norms. Uh, But I kind of got stuck for the 1990s and the 2000s, got a little distracted. And uh, this basically emerged recently. And I'll tell you a bit of research that helped orient uh, its emergence. Uh, In Saudi Arabia, there's a custom that wives don't work unless husbands say it's okay. That's the custom. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority of young Saudi men think it's fine if their wives work. It's also the case that Saudi men overwhelmingly believe that other Saudi men think it's unacceptable if their wives work. So the private view of young Saudi men is it's fine. Maybe it's good. The perception of young Saudi men is that people like them think it's not good and not fine. There's an opportunity there. So in the relevant research, the experimenters told young Saudi men that actually 
guys like you think it's fine if wives are working outside of the home. Guess what happened? As a result, the number of Saudi women applying for jobs in the relevant group increased dramatically four months later. Okay, I'm going to be using that as a clue to the answer to the question about how change happens. Uh, what I want to give some particular attention to is why change often seems to come out of nowhere. The civil rights movement of the 1960s, completely unanticipated. The fact that Brexit worked, not completely unanticipated, and it hasn't quite worked yet, but the fact that it succeeded was widely not expected. The rise of feminism in various parts of the world as different moments in history came as uh, a shock to many people who embraced feminism. The rise of fascism in the 1930s, including the success of Hitler and Mussolini, who knew that could happen? We're in the midst of an assortment of social movements. Some of them we can glimpse, some are barely on the horizon. And one thing that's highly likely is that the best prognosticators today are going to get it wrong. I'm going to start with some pretty simple remarks about why the unexpected nature of social success, including transformative success, is not as baffling as it appears to be. And I'm going to apply this to hashtag MeToo on the ground that it's of interest in itself, and hashtag MeToo tells us something more general about social change in numerous fields. So here's a way to get clear on the uh, mystery that motivates the, uh, the obsession I've had. Uh, Tocqueville, probably the greatest sociologist ever, at least one of the candidates, if they gave an all-time greatest sociologist award, award, Tocqueville would be on the short list. He reported that no one foresaw the French Revolution. Nobody. Lenin was stunned by the speed and success of the Russian Revolution. Lenin. If anyone was an architect, it was Lenin. He had no idea. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 was unanticipated, including by the participants. The idea that the country could turn around, as Iran did, that was not expected. The Arab Spring was unanticipated by the best analysts in the United Kingdom and the United States. I saw this up close because I was in the White House at the time. And when things happened in the Arab Spring, the, the leading experts were amazed. They didn't see it coming. Okay, it's common in social science circles to refer to two things, demonstration effects and contagion effects. But that might be like trying to explain the success of opium by its dormitive qualities. Opium induces sleep. Opium is said by some pranksters to induce sleep because it has dormitive properties. That's not an explanation. That's a restatement. To say that the success of social movements is a product of demonstration and contagion effects is like an explanation by noun rather than an explanation of a phenomenon. It doesn't tell you anything. 
Okay, I'm going to try to make progress by referring to three things. Preference falsification, diverse thresholds, and interdependencies. Elaboration will come, but for starters, everyone in the, on the planet, including everyone in this room, has some desires and beliefs and experiences in our heads that we have told either no one or only our closest uh, family and friends. The fact is that we will silence ourselves about some of the things we want. It may involve Harvard. It may involve Massachusetts. It may involve the United Nations. It may involve the United States. We shut up. Or worse, we misstate what we actually think. That's preference falsification. The second point involving diverse thresholds is that for some people, and you know them, don't you? Injustice, and they're there. I had a friend in uh, the Middle East a number of years ago where we witnessed, he and I, a father beating up a child. It was probably his child. And it was on the street, and he was just punching him. And my friend, who was Irish and had a temper and about five foot seven, he just ran up to that guy and said, stop hitting that child. Now, that was a low threshold. He didn't need anyone to support him before he did that. He was there. I followed him and supported him. But he had a low threshold. I had a slightly higher threshold. Some people with respect to injustice have very high thresholds. With respect to the third part, interdependencies, most of us are really reactive to what other people say and do. If one person is doing something, embracing, let's say, a Green New Deal or calling for animal rights, we might think, crazy person. But if a thousand are embracing an idea or a movement, we might think, why haven't I joined them already? If you put together preference falsification, diverse thresholds, and interdependencies, the difficulty of anticipating social change and even large-scale social transformations becomes much less puzzling. Now what I'm going to do, I've told you the text, and like any self-respecting law professor, the text is much shorter than the footnotes, and here come the footnotes. Ready? They're not going to be in small font. Footnote one, with respect to preference falsification, people might say they like an existing status quo when they really don't, or they might change the subject when a status quo is raised, or they might hear a little voice in their head which they turn off. Here are some words from the best book I've ever read on Nazism. And it's the best book because it's not only revealing, it's also cheerful. So you can read it without crying. And it's written by a journalist who went back to Germany in the 1950s and spoke to former Nazis and found, you know, to his at least mild surprise, he liked everyone. They were all good people. One of them said this when asked about opposition. The former Nazi named Karl said, opposition? How would anybody know? How would anybody know what somebody else opposes or doesn't oppose? 
that a man says he opposes or doesn't oppose depends on the circumstances, where and when, and to whom, and just how he says it. And even then, you must still guess why he says what he says. Now, that's offhand remarks by someone who wasn't a social theorist, but who lived under Nazism. And it's profound. He's suggesting that the existence or absence of opposition is contingent on what's permissible, what social norms are. To that extent, Karl is referring to the fact that in Germany, as in every society, people live in a state of pluralistic ignorance, which means we don't know what is in other people's heads. People might seem content with the status quo or miserable about it, when in fact what they're thinking inside, if you could see a thought bubble, would be very different. And if they're silent, it's very hard to know what they're thinking. The law matters if people lack freedom of speech and if dissent is punished, but social norms are often the villain of the piece, if there's a villain, in the sense that they mean that people might be ostracized or shunned or punished in some way if they say what they really think. I gave you some words from the 1950s. Here are some words from basically yesterday from Syria. When you meet somebody coming out of Syria for the first time, you start to hear the same sentences, that everything is okay in Syria. Syria is a great country. The economy is doing great. It'll take him like six months, up to one year, to become a normal human being, to say what he thinks, what he feels. Then they might start whispering. They won't speak loudly. That is too scary. After all that time, even outside Syria, you feel that someone is listening, someone is recording. Okay, the Syrian computer programmer in that case is the same as the former Nazi, is the same as the young Syrian men who were saying something even to their spouses, which is different from what was actually inside their minds. Second moving part is diverse threshold. Some people require no support at all before they will say what they think or join a movement. They might be courageous, foolhardy, or just deeply committed. We can call them, and this isn't pejorative, the zeros in the sense that they need nothing to join a movement of one or another kind. It could be white nationalism, it could be Nazism, it could be a liberation movement. If no one joins them, they are going to be marginalized. They'll look foolhardy, extreme, or possibly nuts. That's the technical term. MIT Press didn't let me put that in the book. Other people are going to require some social support, like me in the Middle Eastern country. I supported my friend, but I needed him to go first. People like this won't move unless someone else does, but if someone else does, they're prepared to join too. Call them the ones. Others require more than a little. They need two people, so they are the twos. The twos are followed by people who, not shockingly, have numbers assigned to them, all the way up to hundreds and thousands, 
including eventually the infinites, defined as people who, for one or another reason, won't challenge the status quo no matter what. Okay, here's the kicker. It's extremely difficult to observe people's internal preferences in light of preference falsification. It's even harder to get at people's thresholds, and we ourselves probably don't know what our thresholds are. In the Iranian revolution, people who participated in the revolt were amazed that they did. Some of them turned out to be fours and they had no idea. Others turned out to be 70s, and they might have thought that they were infinites. Consider the astonished words. Now we're talking actually about a large part of the dynamics of the American Revolution. John Adams wrote with amazement, idolatry to monarchs and servility to aristocratical pride was never so so totally eradicated from so many minds in so short a time. I have a friendly amendment to Adams. I don't think he has it quite right. It's not as if there was idolatry and servility eradicated. It's that people who were silent about their resentment and distress weren't silent anymore. So it seemed like a ratification. It was instead a kind of unleashing. Thomas Paine put it, I think, more precisely. He said, our style and manner of thinking have undergone a revolution more extraordinary than the political revolution of a country. Now, for Paine to say that in the midst of the American Revolution, that's drama. More extraordinary is what's happened to our manner of thinking. We see with other eyes, we hear with other ears, and think with other thoughts than those we formerly used. I think Paine is also speaking of preference falsification undone. His language doesn't quite get at that. But any reading of the American Revolution shows that's what's happening. Preference falsification and diverse thresholds are uh, turning in a direction of movement because the zeros and the ones and the twos started to act. Okay, last moving part is interdependencies. Everything depends on who is seen to have what done what and exactly when. So diverse thresholds are one thing. Whether people are going to move depends on whether the zeros go first and are seen to have told that father to stop hitting his kid, whether the ones are seen to have joined a movement, let's say, for hashtag me too, and then the twos and the threes and the fours. And if that's what happens, we're going to see a movement and it's going to succeed. But everything depends on the distribution of action and the thresholds. If there are no zeros, or if no one sees any of them, no rebellion's going to occur. If there are few ones, the status quo is going to be safe. If most people are tens or hundreds or thousands, the same is true, even if there are plenty of twos and threes and fours. Okay, those are my three moving parts. I have to add one fourth component, which helps explain why social inflammation sometimes occurs. And that is rooted in what I learned from a failed academic project from a few years ago. The failed academic project was a group decision-making. 
And in our work, we found how outraged individuals are about corporate wrongdoing. And in trying to study jury behavior, we put individuals into computer-generated juries. We had a bunch of jurors. We created statistical juries. And we took the median judgment of the statistical juries as the likely predictor of what the jury would do. Critics of our paper... Only seven people read the paper, so there weren't a lot of critics. But of the seven, four pointed out that maybe the jury wouldn't end up where the average or median juror was, that there was something artificial about our study. So we followed it with a very large mock jury study involving actual deliberating juries, hoping to prove that we were right, that the median was the best predictor. We were wrong. People in deliberating groups, if they're mad, end up much madder than the median individual. People in deliberating groups, if they're feeling lenient, are more lenient than the median individual. Groups end up going to a more extreme point in line with their pre-deliberation tendencies. Having found that with respect to juries making punitive judgments, punitive damage judgments about corporate misbehavior, we followed up with a study of political beliefs. And the most uh, currently salient example is climate change. If you get a group of people a bit concerned about climate change and think there should be an international agreement, after they talk to each other, they are terrified about climate change and think we should sign an international agreement right now. If you have a group of people who aren't worried about climate change and thinks maybe it's a hoax, even if the distribution of views is varied and some people think it's probably a problem, international agreements may be a good idea, after they talk to each other, they think the whole thing is ridiculous, it's made up by environmentalist elite, forget about it. And this is real people in Colorado, actually, who went whoosh to the right and whoosh to the left, depending on their pre-deliberation tendency. And that can fortify the three moving parts that I've emphasized. Okay, here's the uh, attempted resolution of the mystery of unpredictable movement. First, it's really hard to know what people's preferences are. They can't be observed. Second, people's thresholds are even harder to ascertain. Even if we know people are really upset about something, to know what their thresholds for action is, is really tough. Even if we could solve those two problems, it's very hard to know in advance the nature of social interactions. Now I'm going to give kind of the weak version of the unpredictability claim and then a somewhat stronger version. The weak version I'm going to give with some confidence. The stronger version is tentative. The weak version is that it's just an empirical challenge that we're not close to being able to surmount. The stronger version is it's conceptually impossible and humanity is never going to be able to solve this. Here's a gesture toward defending the stronger version. With Google searches, we can find out something about people's private preferences. If people are Googling a lot, let's say MIT Press Books published in April 2019, we have some reason to believe that even they're kind of embarrassed to say they're interested in MIT Press Books in 2019. That's not the coolest thing that they're actually interested. I'm trying to give you an example that's not as salacious 
as the examples that principally provide the data for figuring out what people really care about. There's a book on this, and it's not as ridiculous and a little more off-color than the MIT Press book. Okay, so even if we could find from Google searches something about what people really care about involving politics or products, we wouldn't know what their thresholds are. And even if we could know both of those, we wouldn't know who interacts with whom when. And that's very hard, I think impossible to know, because it depends on accidents often. We might know that probabilistically some movement is more likely than it would otherwise seem if we could observe people's private preferences, but we won't know whether it's going to happen or not because we won't know who's going to interact with whom and when. No one has that kind of prescience. There's probably a Black Mirror episode in production right now, which is intended as a response to my more ambitious claim, where it's predictable, but I don't believe it. Okay, here's an upshot. It's often tempting in hindsight to say that some movement or reform was consistent with history's arc or was the product of some cultural disposition. But it's more often true that it's a product of some small, random, or serendipitous factor of who did what when, of who heard what when, or whether a butterfly flapped its wings at the right moment. History is only run once, so it's very hard to prove this. History doesn't allow for randomized controlled trials. But when we think that practice or status quo or regime A fell, we often think it was bound to fall. It really wasn't. It happened to fall. The same is true if it doesn't. It happened not to fall. And there's an amazing Spanish... Netflix show called something If I Hadn't Met Her or If I Hadn't Met You, which is profoundly about exactly this. Counterfactual histories are not observed outside of Netflix and science fiction, but they illuminate the power of serendipitous or seemingly random factors. Okay, having said this about social movements, it must be added that if we have clarity about preference falsification, about diverse thresholds and social interactions, we have some good clues about how to start or stop a social movement. The Chinese government is actually quite alert to some of this, such that the recent data with which, to its credit, the Chinese government has cooperated in the provision of, Gary King, Harvard political scientist, finds, that the Chinese government on social media is not censoring disagreement and dissent. Not a lot. If you want to say negative things, that's fine, as a first approximation. But if someone says, we have a protest movement that's meeting Thursday on this street, and there are a lot of people coming, that's not welcome. And that may not find itself taken down. And that's clever in terms of the prevention of social disruption that if there's advertisement about a large movement at a time certain, then group polarization may kick in, then preference falsification may be undone, and then we may have the kind of social interaction that can get things moving. Okay, this is a bare-bones picture, and let's introduce just a few supplemental points. Here are some words from a woman basically also the day before yesterday 
not not old, from North Korea. It never occurred to me that I could or would want to do anything about it. It was just how things are. That's an arresting comment. And the most arresting word is want. It never occurred to me that I could or would want to do anything about it. Now, what makes that word important is that this isn't like the Syria tale or the former Nazi. This is a story about preferences that have adapted to the status quo. Her wants were affected by where she found herself. In some cases, people's preferences are adaptive to background conditions, which means they do not have a voice in their head saying, this isn't good. There's very puzzling data from uh, subjective well-being studies, which finds basically that women's happiness relative to men has been going down since the 1970s and absolutely. So in the period in which women's equality has been on the rise, women's subjective well-being has decreasing. That's a paradox. One explanation for the paradox is that the well-being data from conditions of, let's say, more serious inequality is a product of adaptive preferences. If you live under circumstances of inequality, you may be uh, not rebelling because the inequality seems part of life's furniture. Okay, if we're dealing with preferences that are adaptive or partially adaptive, then it's inadequate to talk about preference falsification. That idea is too simple. Okay, second point. The word preference falsification is underdescriptive. Often what we're talking about is people's experiences and values, not their preferences. Sure, they're concealing or falsifying what they prefer, but they're also concealing concealing their deepest moral beliefs and most searing of all what actually happened to them. They're either silent about it or they're lying about it. And I'm acutely aware that the incidence of sexual abuse uh, in the United States of children and adults is such that the number of people in this room who've experienced it or who've uh, experienced it in their family is a lot higher than zero. And that's a case study in preference falsification being inadequate. We're talking about silence about experience or about moral convictions. That's worse. That's fake news. We also have to note that if the goal of those who are in favor of the status quo, and it may be a great status quo or a bad one, is to maintain itself, there are a lot of options. You can allow dissent and disagreement until it becomes too visible. It might be an outlet. You might make concessions hoping to retain the existing arrangement by doing that. You might bring out guns. You might try persuasion. Or you might agilely uh, take advantage of what we know about the four mechanisms, where the fourth, the kind of supplemental one, is group polarization, to try to stop things before it gets out of hand. Okay, I want to concretize this by talking about hashtag MeToo. And my hope is that whatever social movement you're interested in or excited by or alarmed by, uh, this will... um, involve mechanisms that are completely adaptable to it. 
And if they're not completely adaptable to what you're interested in or alarmed by, tell me about it, because that will suggest the incompleteness of the account. Okay, with respect to sexual harassment and sexual assault, preference falsification, needless to say, has been pervasive. Victims have often said all was or is well when not, or they've silenced themselves. As noted, that's not enough, because what many women and many but fewer men did not reveal, what they kept private, was a set of experiences alongside evaluative judgments about those experiences. So experience falsification is really the engine here. Second, different women had and have different thresholds for disclosing their experiences and their judgments. And I'm using women here deliberately, acutely aware that many men, including many men in this room, I hope not many, but at least some men in this room have experienced something like what I'm describing. But because the disproportion is number is, is women, it might efface something not to say that. Okay, some women are ones, others are twos, others are tens, and others are hundreds or infinites. The infinites are especially interesting. They might have some kind of loyalty to the perpetrator. They might not want their lives disrupted. They might cherish their privacy. Some might have no clarity on what their thresholds are, and they and we will learn only ex post. Here are some words from Beverly Young Nelson, who accused Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore of having assaulted her in 1977, and she's very precise on what made her speak out. I thought I was his only victim. I would probably have taken what he did to me to my grave had it not been for the courage of four other women who were willing to speak out about their experiences. Their courage inspired me to overcome my fear. Third, social interactions are crucial to hashtag MeToo. Hashtag MeToo has benefited from the visibility of those who spoke out and the multiple interactions made possible by social media. Taylor Swift was a contributor here with her lawsuit against unwanted touching, but Alyssa Milano was the largest instigator. Within 24 hours of her initial tweet, and I find this almost impossible to believe, but it's so. Within 24 hours of her initial tweet asking for hashtag me too to be said for those who had such experiences, 45% of all use Facebook users in the United States had friends in their na- network who'd posted hashtag me too. Within 24 hours, not a lot less than half once the ones and the twos spoke out, the threes and the fours were safer or, or emboldened. Okay, this account is also very bare bones. And I think we want to emphasize just a couple of points for present purposes. One of the not very recent, but relatively recent electric findings in behavioral sciences points to the power of descriptive social norms. So I'll give you an example um, do you all know about Twitter? It's one of the new social media platforms. Have you heard of Twitter? Or, or not yet? Do you think I've lost my mind? Okay, so on Twitter, there's a guy I follow who's a behavioral finance guy who wrote a book 
called, I think, Behavioral Finance. And it's, it's a good book. But as its title suggests, it's not challenging Stephen King for number one on the bestseller list. So he tweets very frequently, my book is doing better than expectations. Thank you for the support, which is, I think, literally true and smart. He's suggesting that his book is selling well and is probably doing better than expectations, which were zero. He's not, he's not, he's not going to lie and say he's doing great, but he says that. Now, what he's doing is invoking a descriptive social norm to the effect that people are buying his book. And we know that if people think that people are recycling or doctors think that they are not giving antibiotic prescriptions as much as they thought or that people are paying their taxes in numbers that are really high, we can increase the volume of people who engage in the relevant behavior. That is, invoking the descriptive norm often creates a self-fulfilling prophecy, for better or for worse. Okay, that's an old finding. The new finding, which is not widely known, but I think is as electrifying, is if you don't have a great existing social norm, point to an emerging social norm. Say people are increasingly doing X or X within your your group is the current trend. The reference to the dynamic social norm often fuels behavior. And hashtag Me Too has benefited from both of those. Okay, we have to note that with respect to hashtag Me Too, we're not speaking only of revelation of preferences and experiences but also about the transformation of preferences and beliefs and values. I'm going to tell you something a little bit personal here, and this isn't very characteristic, but I find what we're now describing uh, both relevant to politics and law and kind of powerfully relevant to to personal life. And here's my example. A long time ago when feminism was just starting in legal circles, I was interested in it and... uh, started writing a bit about it, editing a book about it. And I told my mother, who's uh, no longer alive, that she asked, what are you working on? And I told her. And she thought that was not a good idea. She said, you're a constitutional law guy. Don't you work on the Administrative Procedure Act? She was a very supportive mother. I said, why are you working on this? That's crazy stuff. And I said, well, there's some really good work being done. And she said, stick with the Administrative Procedure Act. (laughs) And uh, finally, I told her what Catherine McKinnon and Martha Minow and others were working on and uh, went at some length about my uh, reading. And she said with three words that she'd never said before and she never said after. She paused and she said with... Uh, what, indescribable emotion. She said, God bless you. And what I thought was in those three words was uh, an assortment of personal experiences she herself had had that she never told anybody about. And that in, with those words, she was uh, signaling. Which is to say that hashtag me too, as in many social movements, is not just about the revelation of preferences, beliefs, and values. It's also about their transformation. Most obviously, in this case, on the part of uh, perpetrators, 
but equally relevantly on the part of victims. Any social movement doesn't just unleash pre-existing values. It casts a new light on existing experiences. It produces fresh ones. Part of the point of civil rights movements of multiple different kinds, right and left, and one of their greatest achievements, and I hope if there's anything you remember from these remarks, it's this, is to transform a sense of embarrassment and shame into a sense of dignity. Okay, final words. Recall in this light the testimony of a computer programmer recently from Syria. When you first meet somebody coming out of Syria for the first time, you start to hear the same sentences, that everything is okay. It'll take like six months, up to one year, for them to become a normal human being again, to say what they think, what they feel. Then they might start whispering. They won't speak loudly, but eventually they might. Thanks. Thanks again to the president and fellows of Harvard College for allowing us to use that copyrighted presentation. We now go to my conversation with Professor Sunstein. I knew I only had an hour with him, and I had a very long list of questions to ask, so we dove right in. Uh, so I know you're a very busy guy, so uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Cass. Uh, a great pleasure, an honor. Yeah, uh, listeners will have just heard you giving a presentation explaining uh, the core content of the book, How Change Happens. In my mind, you bring up uh, four key concepts. Firstly, preference falsification. Uh, secondly, differing thresholds for action between people. Um, and thirdly, uh, group polarization once people actually start organizing themselves. Uh, and then you add those three together and, and suggest that they, along with the uh, inherent randomness of who talks to who, when, and what they do, uh, makes social change uh, really fundamentally unpredictable. Um, so, so let's uh, dive into discussing how, how accurate all of that is, and I guess uh, what implications it has for all of us who would like to make a better world. The book's been out for three or four months uh, now. What, what do you think people have most misunderstood or are underappreciated about it? Well, I've actually been really gratified that people have focused on the idea that there's an interaction between social norms and the unleashing of what's actually inside people's heads. So the, the kind of principal theme is that we all have in our minds uh, goals and commitments and aspirations and experiences uh, to which we don't give voice. And sometimes that's good because our commitments might be uh, awful, uh, and we know it, and so we shut up about them. But sometimes it's not so good when our commitments are honorable or um, justified, and there's something in our community that makes us not say anything. And people have really picked up on that. I think it resonates with uh, both the right and uh, the left. I, I confess I haven't seen misunderstandings, uh, so pleased about that, or maybe just uh, this is motivated reasoning so that I've blinded myself to the misunderstandings. Why did it take you decades to kind of put together everything you needed to, to, to finish the book? Uh, I started with what's now chapter three, the expressive function of law. And I thought there was a, uh, a core of something there, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. And so it took, I think, 
uh, subsequent work on group judgments, and uh, that's now chapter two, and how uh, like-minded people end up, end up going to extremes and how to think about that. Sometimes that's you know part of democracy at its best. Sometimes it uh, creates horror. And the exposure probably to the work of Timur Kuran, who writes on preference falsification, and he became a co-author in uh, the late 1990s, that postdated. Uh, and probably my immersion in behavioral science, which started after actually thinking about the expressive function of law, uh, was what ultimately made the book possible. Have you heard any kind of good arguments against the, the vision of how society changes that, that you've pre presented in the book? Have you gotten any pushback that's, that's changed, your, changed your opinions? Some people have said something that's in the book, but maybe not highlighted adequately, which is that often the consequence of a, a norm change is that you create new values and commitments that didn't exist before. So I've heard from many interlocutors that the emphasis on unleashing what's inside people's heads isn't exactly wrong, but it's excessive. If you think of, uh, let's say, the movement for animal rights or the movement to ban uh, smoking in public places or uh, the movement for preventing discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, a lot of that isn't about liberating people to say what they think but about changing values. And it, uh, that interacts well with another concern that people have raised, which is that people often adapt their preferences and their values to a sense of what's possible. Um, Jan Elster, the uh, great Norwegian political theorist, has uh, spurred work on the adaptation of preferences to what's around. And people have said that, that deserves a great deal of emphasis. Uh, it is in the book, but it could have been foregrounded a bit more yeah that's that's one of the questions i uh had about the about the about the book like how much do you think social change is driven by these falsified preferences i guess especially in, in, in a country like the united states where although you can be socially sanctioned for saying things that are unacceptable you're unlikely to be thrown in jail or, or you know uh, beaten up or killed or anything like that uh, which i think is where kind of timor was originally doing his his work on preference falsification it was about revolutions in in dictatorships Yes, I, I think a lot, even in the United States and the United Kingdom and France and Canada, countries that do have either formal freedom or formal freedom plus cultures of, let's say, welcoming dissent, uh, I think still a lot. So uh, I'll give a few examples. The uh, movement for same-sex marriage Clearly, it's the case that the closet was a uh, devastation for the movement for that. And as the closet started to open up, then then something started to move. Uh, it's much bigger than that, though, that heterosexuals who were fine with same-sex marriage or who were fine with equality or uh, even wanted it, they were closeted, too. And the existence of a shifting norm unleashed people like my mother. I'm heterosexual, but my mother kind of talked as if she was homophobic until at a certain point. She said, that's ridiculous. And she always had a voice in her head saying that's ri ridiculous. And that happened to many millions of people in free countries. I think John Stuart Mill was on this point that we often uh, underestimate the extent to which conformity pressures are, are squelching 
uh, behavior, even in quite free nations. And Mill, his lived experience with an illicit uh, love affair with Harriet Taylor, which ended up creating terrible disruption in his relations with his family and his friends. I think he spoke for that. And what Mill encountered when he violated a norm in his own community, uh, all of us, I think, are in a sense afraid of. And I mean, that's a strong statement, but I, 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 I mean it th that strongly. Not like we're, you know, uh, terrified or cowering, but in some sense, all of us are scared of what happened to Mill. Maybe the, the, the line between these two can be a little bit blurred because it seems in, in the case of gay marriage, probably lots of people had never really thought about it. They didn't have some like hidden preference in favor of gay marriage. Uh, but it was the case that because people who, who were gay uh, were not speaking up about their own experiences, uh, that they were failing to be persuaded where, where they could have been persuaded quite easily if, this, if the conversation was happening much more in the open. Yeah. So, so one big part of the movement for gay marriage is the uh, unleashing through the softening of social norms of gays and lesbians to say, I love this person, I want to marry him. You're not allowing me. And the other thing that happened was that many heterosexuals who went around kind of laughing in a homophobic way or uh, thinking same-sex marriage, that's ridiculous. But it, well, in their head, they didn't really think that. Uh, they they shifted. But as you say, you're quite right that a number of people uh, didn't think about it much or thought of the ban on same-sex marriage as just part of life's furniture. And as the uh, possibility opened up, they started considering it. But what I want to focus on, because I think it's particularly intriguing for extremely rapid social change, is when uh, a dam breaks and many social movements, large and small, are exercises in dam breaking, where a social norm operated as a tax on behavior, so that you couldn't do it without facing something like a fine. And then the tax diminishes, or what was once a tax becomes a subsidy. So you're better off if you say what you think. Yeah, I guess I um, wonder what, what lessons there are here for, for activists, especially ones who are willing to campaign on kind of a, a wide range of issues, whichever ones they, they, they think are more promising. Um, do, do you think it's easier to get uh, social change when kind of people have hidden preferences that agree with you or uh, rather than cases where you kind of have to actually uh, go, go and persuade them because they, they sincerely do disagree? The first is much easier. So uh, the fact that, you know, um, President Trump got elected and that Brexit came out the way it did uh, is a tribute to the existence of pro-Trump and pro-Brexit sentiment that had been uh, stopped by social norms. And once the norm started to shift, then something extremely surprising in both cases could happen. That's the easier one. And activists do have some lessons, which are, first, if you can draw attention to a social norm that people haven't realized is in place, that is, people are with you, you don't know it, say what you think, that can be extremely effective. And many activists are uh, in, at some level aware of that. Uh, the other thing, which is very recent data, I'm not even sure it made it into the book, is that uh, if people see a norm not as in place, but as emerging, then they are inspired to join, uh, partly because then they feel freed, but partly, for, to your point, they might not know what they think, but they want to be on the right side of history. So for activists to say increasing numbers of people are is uh, smart. In, in light of that, 
Uh, one point you make in the book is that it can be incredibly hard to figure out what people's hidden preferences are and kind of what are their what, what are people's thresholds for actions and sometimes even they don't know it. Uh, but it seems like people campaigning for social change, both both progressive and conservative, maybe they should be spending half of their resources just engaging in like very extensive public surveys to try to figure out where people already agree with them, uh, because those campaigns are just likely to be so much more successful than ones where they're kind of banging their head against a wall because people actually just sincerely disagree. Yeah. Do, do, do you think it's maybe something that uh, political parties or uh, campaign groups should, should you know, invest like really serious resources in finding out? Well, I think to, uh, you know, to tell people how to allocate money is hazardous business, uh, but certainly it's a wise approach both to target uh, existing views which people haven't felt free to signal. And there's research that can help you find out what those are. Google knows a lot about that. Uh, there's a, a nice book called Everybody Lies, which is about things that Google knows. And some of it's really surprising. It, it's an avenue into uncovering what private preferences are. And to have as a strategy that uh, to disclose uh, a fact, I'll give you a little study from Saudi Arabia, which is that uh, Saudi men by custom have authority over whether their wives work outside the home. And most young Saudi men actually think it's fine that their wives work outside of the home. But they think most young Saudi men think that most young Saudi men think it's not fine. So they think they're isolated in their uh, openness to wives that are working outside of the home. In the experiment, once Saudi men were informed that most Saudi men actually think like them, then the number of Saudi women applying to join the workforce uh, grew dramatically four months later. And that, that was a research study, not a feminist program. But there's a clue there about uh, programs of all sorts. Yeah, it's very interesting. It seems like you could just almost conduct kind of scattershot surveys of like try to find lots of cases where maybe people's uh, like private views are somewhat different than their public views and where they agree with you and then just publicize the results every time you find out uh, that in fact, like lots of people already agree with you. So, yes, yeah. completely. And President Trump does use this. I'm completely bracketing whether uh, we like or love or don't like President Trump, but he's very intuitive about this, saying that most people think X. And and he's often not wrong. It, most might be a little too strong, but many. And that is a little bit uh, social proof. So, so, so the rate at which you seem to write books is uh, pretty phenomenal because <laughs> just uh, two months after publishing uh, How Change Happens, um, uh, just uh, last month, you uh, published a book called Conformity, um, which goes into even more detail about this issue of uh, group polarization. Uh, I'll stick up a link to, to, to an extract from, from that book, which I found uh, very thought provoking. How confident are you that, that the evidence for group polarization will, will stand up in the, in the replication crisis? Um, and are there any circumstances where uh, groups kind of moderate rather than extremize? Because it seems like they can't always be extremizing or, or the world would just be absolutely wacky. Okay, so this is these are great questions. So uh, actually, the conformity, my conformity book, I based on lectures that I'd never published that were published in 2003. And I had fondness for them. And I'd been working over them over the years. And I relatively recently thought maybe I should put them together as a book. So the conformity took about 16 years and the other took 25. So <laughs> I don't feel I feel like the tortoise, not the hare. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, that on the replication crisis. I have a uh, maybe an idiosyncratic view, which is uh, what happens in Syria these days or in what's happened certainly over the last period in Syria. That's that's a crisis. 
Climate change is arguably a crisis. I think it's fair to deem it a crisis. If there's an earthquake, there, there's a crisis. The idea of a replication crisis strikes me as, it has become the term, but it strikes me as, you know, uh, what's the- Hyperbole. Uh, to say it's hyperbole is an understatement. It's it's true It's that it's, that, that, that it's hyperbole, but it's, I mean, only academics, I think, would think that the failure of some of their research to replicate is a crisis rather than learning. Now, the, the fact that we've gotten more disciplined about ensuring that a finding isn't uh, a one-off or a finding isn't an artifact of a particular, let's say, uh, fraudulent or inadequate design, that's very important and that, that is progress. So that's great. Uh, I, I was very um, obsessive about the group polarization material and it's been replicated, you know, countless times. So we don't have just one group polarization study. I've been involved in numerous ones myself, and it's always happened. But uh, I'm a very modest contributor to the empirical research. So it's, it's a very robust finding. Now, the finding means that like-minded people talking with one another typically end up in a more extreme position in line with their antecedent tendencies. And that is in typical form what will happen within deliberating groups. But um, try to be clear in the book on the in the book conformity, and it probably made its way into how change happens also, about the circumstances when it won't happen. So Jim Fishkin, an excellent uh, political theorist at Stanford, has done a deliberative opinion poll where he does not observe group, group polarization. And one reason is he supplies people with information that isn't self-generated by the group, information for and against various positions. So if you have some epistemic intervention, then that, that will uh, undermine the mechanisms that lead to group polarization. So that's one. If you have a, gr a group of people that consists of uh, let's say two sets of subgroups which are equally opposed, then they they aren't going to polarized. They're just going to entrench themselves typically. Uh, now, if they have some softening capacity, then something surprising can happen. But typically, two, you know, four people who think Israel's the greatest country and never did anything wrong, four people think Israel's the worst country and they've done everything wrong, uh, they're not going to move each other. They might end up liking or hating each other, but they're, they're not going to polarize uh, in the way described. Uh, a cool finding is that for what are called eureka problems, where the answer once announced is clear to all, we observe uh, consensus on the right answer, not group polarization. It's why a large group of people can solve a crossword puzzle uh, where someone will say, oh, four letters. What's the word for going south? Down. And th that's how they feel. And they say, oh, that's it. That, that works. And so for that, you won't observe polarization. Also, some things can happen in individual groups where you could have a charismatic or extremely informed participant who thinks that the dominant tendency is wrong. And then the group, uh, you know, could I haven't done any experiment where this actually happened, though I've done a lot. But I'm, in the world, it happens where a charismatic, informed person can be like someone who says down four letters going south and moves the entire group in his or her prefer, preferred direction. 
Yeah, I, I know a group that has kind of explicitly aimed to use group polarization to, to, to radicalize its own members and, and, and make them more more committed to their work. Um, and I guess they hope that these these radicals are then kind of form a vanguard that will go on and convince the rest of society of their views. And I got to say, I, I find this makes me feel pretty squeamish because it's kind of deliberately making kind of your members less reasonable and have less of a balanced overall all opinion. But it does seem like like it could be justified in, in, in some cases if that's kind of the only way that you, that you could get an outcome that was desirable. Uh, do, do, you have any, do you have any feelings about that, that approach to social change? Yeah, I, I share your view, everything you said I agree with. So suppose you believe, let's say, that uh, climate change is a serious problem and we should do something about it. Uh, the preferred way to move in the direction of that goal is to persuade others that it's true, not to have, let's say, a climate change camp where people are deliberately heating themselves up, so to speak. Now, if it's climate change camp where people are exchanging information so that they know what they're talking about, it's designed for learning and uh, moral commitment rather than for group dynamics, that's, that's better. Uh, on the other hand, you can imagine circumstances where, uh, let's say, a polarization entrepreneur uh, is trying to combat something horrible uh, and doesn't mind the fact that the social dynamics in the group are going to create an extremely committed and extreme set of people. That's that's not out of bounds, but it would be a little bit of a, I think... Uh, you really got to hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, an emergency situation. When you get groups together, sometimes they must extremize just because they become more informed. They kind of share information and it turns out that kind of an extreme position is is, is the correct one. It's not always the case that moderating is, is the right thing to do. Do you have any thoughts on kind of norms that groups can follow that can help them tell the difference between warranted and unwarranted extre- extremization? Okay. I think you made a very important point and let's uh, press a little on the factual predicate and you're right. Um, and it's a kind of a double-edged sword. So first question is, why do groups tend up, end up going in a more extreme position in line with their pre-deliberation tendency? Why, if you have a group of people who think that uh, occupational safety is the number one issue and uh, workers are dying at an extremely high rate, why do they end up think, think being more extreme in that position after they talk with one another? And the reason, the principal reason, I think, uh, though the data, I'd be more careful in uh, you know, on reflection than saying it's the principal reason. It's, it, it's it, not less than any other reason is probably the more accurate way to put it, uh, is just information exchange. So within a group that's worried about occupational safety, by definition, the number of arguments that support the concern uh, will be more than the number of arguments that undermine the concern. And so if people are listening to one another, they will hear more arguments in favor of the position. And that's going to lead to polarization. Now, that has nothing to do with anything invidious. It doesn't have to do with bounded rationality. It just has to do with information exchange within a group. Okay, but here's the kind of uh, kicker in terms of rationality, that people in groups are not inclined to discount for their, their group's composition. So there's uh, insufficient thinking that, okay, I'm learning from these people, but these people aren't the only people in the world, and maybe the information flow within the group is unrepresentative of the information that, that's there. So even if information is the driver of group polarization, it can lead people in not very good directions. 
So if that happens, uh, what you want, I think, is a group where people can participate in enclaves of like-minded types. That's part of freedom of association. But you want to make all, all sure also that social architecture, let's say, uh, makes it easy or likely that participants within the enclave will be exposed to other stuff too. And if they are exposed to other stuff, it's not like to hold it up as if it's a piece of dirt and say, look how ridiculous it is. This may sound a little bit abstract, but you can think of uh, a newspaper or the BBC uh, or Facebook as being able to create enclaves or to broaden, let's say, the enclave exposure to other stuff. I saw an interesting paper recently suggesting that uh, people are very worried about, yeah, like groupthink in, in online communities, but it actually uh, seems like people's real life uh, groups are even more uh, enclaves of particular views. It's like you think about your housemates, or your family or, or your, your colleagues, they're kind of almost even more grossly selected than, than, the, than the friends you encounter on Twitter or, or Facebook, uh, which is kind of, kind of interesting spin on things. I, I'd be careful about the data on that. The, the data goes kind of both ways. And it may be that within your neighborhood, the amount of epistemic diversity, let's say, is lower than the amount of epistemic diversity on your Facebook page. That might be. I don't think we actually have a clear answer to that. But that might not mean that the epistemic diversity on, let's say, Facebook, which is greater by hypothesis, we're not agreeing, but we're hypothesizing that that is uh, helping because it might be your your neighbors, you talk to them about the weather and your families and uh, activities there, not about politics or causes, uh, but it might be, and this it might be on Twitter and on Facebook, it's the, the news feed, which is potentially a polarization machine. Yeah, I guess one thing is you, you might like the people who you meet in real life to a greater degree and so take take their views more seriously. Uh, it's like easier to have contempt for people on the internet. Yeah, that that, that is so. Yeah, I, I wondered uh, as I was reading this section on group polarization, whether it's possible that, that part of it could be an illusion because basically people want to fit into a group and so they start like misleading, they start lying about what their views are. You're basically getting preference falsification within these experiments because people are just trying to, to go along to get along. I have data on this. Oh, great. So, uh, I, one of my projects involved uh, citizens, both to right of center and left of center, in which their views were collected anonymously, pre-deliberation. Then the groups went to a verdict publicly on climate change, uh, issues involving racial discrimination and same-sex unions. And then they were asked to record their views anonymously after. And their anonymous views were really close to the views they expressed in groups, not the same, but really close, which supports your view. There is a, a degree of preference falsification, but it, it, in this study, it's small. And the shift in views from what happened in the private anonymous view before they talked to like-minded others and how they uh, recorded their views anonymously uh, after they talked to like-minded others. That was what I was most interested in, and it's really dramatic. So their anonymous view shifted as a result of talk, speaking with others. And, and that fits with some of the original conformity experiments where you have people defying the evidence of their own senses in order to 
uh, agree with the group. And a certain number of them did say, you know, I knew what I was seeing and they were crazy, but I didn't want to look like an idiot in front of everyone. But others said, you know, I thought this is what I was seeing. But since everyone else thought otherwise, I went along with them. I guess I was wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic with those people because uh, it seems like just in, in normal life, kind of going along to get along is actually potentially a good strategy for uh, often achieving your goals because you just don't want to be making trouble and enemies all the time. Yes. Yeah. So the first account of conformity and also group polarization, which feeds into the change theme, is that people are learning from others and they actually do change their views. The other is that they are not learning, but they are trying not to be unpopular or be excluded. And so they're really um, quieting themselves. I'll tell you a personal example, which I've actually never talked about publicly. So I'm pleased to do that here because it is closely connected to your point. Uh, I worked in the White House for four years and uh, the position I had, I had to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And I almost didn't get through because of my work on animal welfare and such. It was uh, truly a nightmare uh, with death threats and uh, ridicule. And ridicule is okay. Death threats, not a whole lot of fun. And since that, I have been you know, much quieter about animal welfare and animal rights. I'm, I'm going to start to get less quiet. I haven't been completely quiet. But I, I didn't not notice the uh, extent of, uh, let's say, conformity pressures that were uh, surrounding me. Yeah, I'm, 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 so, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I think I would probably uh, button up if I started getting uh, death threats as well. This kind of actually kind of leads into my next question, because I was going to say, if, if we're to believe the book, it seems like kind of rebels and contrarians and people who are willing to accept death threats kind of can have a very outsized impact on society's directions. So, so like, typically their ideas won't take off, but every so often they just set off a massive cascade that goes far beyond anything that they could have directly uh, accomplished. Um, do, do you think we should kind of pay more attention to idea rebels and contrarians and uh, potentially tr tr try to become them if we're, if we're willing to, to bear the personal cost involved? Well, certainly uh, to pay more attention to them is really important, though uh, to pay more attention to them to, for what is a natural follow-up question. So to pay more attention that, to them to think about how change happens is crucial. So if you think about the rise of the feminist movement, the rise of the uh, civil rights movement, there are people who were and are by nature rebels. They don't need social support. They're uh, relatively indifferent to the informational signals they're getting from the majority. They think the majority is full of nonsense. And they're relatively indifferent to staying in the good graces of people. They say what they think. And so to pay attention to them as uh, even if their names never end up in the history books as uh, essential is that's really important. Uh, the category of rebels is so large and it includes, you know, uh, people who are literally crazy or people who just have a anger management problem or people who are fastening on something, you know, that is a cause that has no merit. So I wouldn't want to glorify them independent of what it is they're, they're doing. You know, uh, people who kill people are often uh, fighting for a cause which they sincerely are committed to. There's a paper that has been cited many times, but hardly anyone's ever seen it because it's never been published. It's called Misfits and Social Progress by a superb behavioral economist called David Hirschleifer. And 
he has written the paper, but uh, he hasn't published it. I'm trying to get him to publish it. But it's, it's right on your point about understanding the extent to which people have very low thresholds for acting and are impervious, more or less, to social pressures are uh, important for social progress. Do you think that the kind of people that, that you know and potentially listeners in the audience uh, are, are too cautious about being outspoken because they're worried about how it might limit you know, future government careers or, or other careers? Uh, or, do, or do you think they're, they're, they're not cautious enough? Do you have any sense? Well, I would I'll give a reckless answer, which is, yes, they're too cautious. So I think the, the median human being errs toward undue caution. The median human being doesn't err in the direction of civility and grace. There's almost, in my view, no way of erring if you're being civil and gracious. So that's kind of, you know, close to bedrock. But uh, most human beings have moral convictions that deserve erring or experiences they've had that are uh, shared and uh, they shouldn't happen to other people. And to, to ratchet it up in a way that's respectful and civil is usually a good thing. Do, do you worry that if we had kind of too many uh, idea entrepreneurs or too, too many rebels that um, society could become a bit, uh, a bit of a jumble, there'd be like too much conflict and too, too rapid social change, that, that maybe, maybe we need a lot of people to just be boring to kind of hold everything together? Well, so it's a good question, and we need to know what society we're living in. So if we're living in a society which is fundamentally good, than to have uh, respect for the informational signals given by others and to have people concerned about what other people think about them is is really important. If you live in a society that's a horror show of injustice and oppression, then the norm should be one of you know struggling against it. And if you're on a continuum, my country, I think, is uh, close to the first, closer to the first, um, not perfect by any means, but not a horror show. Probably can do a little more. Now, I'm in favor of a by respecting the law. So civil disobedience, I think, would be a last resort. That is a instrument for chaos. Uh, we don't want lawbreakers. Courtesy and civility are good. But it's often good for self as well as for society for people to say what they think. Now, we want to be careful about that because it's all pervaded by substance. If people think that, you know, people of certain skin colors are uh, inferior, that it's not so great if they're broadcasting that. Or if they think that people of certain religious convictions should be in jail or deported, that's that's not very good to have as a uh, as a welcome statement. So. In the abstract, norms in favor of self-silencing might be really important. They make stability and peace possible. You mentioned um, that the, the Chinese Communist Party allows people to air grievances. It just doesn't allow them to kind of coordinate to, to, to promote a revolution. And part of the reason they do that is so that they can keep tabs on what people actually think so that uh, they don't become unaware of, of, of massive discontent in the population. I, I wonder, uh, a lot of people in uh, you know, countries like the US or, or the UK are uh, Put, put, they put their activist energies into trying to discourage people from expressing bad views that they don't want to get a foothold and don't want to spread. Uh, but I wonder whether this does create this risk that then you have a lot of people who disagree with them who are kind of bite, biting their tongues and then it can kind of all kind of explode all, all, all at once. And maybe uh, you want to moderate that a little bit so that you can uh, have a more accurate sense of what people sincerely think. Let me uh, offer, if I may, my limited understanding 
of what's happening in China uh, based on my limited understanding of uh, the empirical research. But I, I think this is what's happening in China. That on social media, dissent, as you say, is generally uh, permitted. I'm not aware that the reason for permitting dissent is to keep tabs on what people are saying. That might be true, but I don't know that to be true. Uh, the idea is if there's dissent, that's okay. Uh, the Chinese government's response appears to be to add to the system a lot of uh, different voices, that is voices of celebration of how things are going, uh, not to censor. Uh, but if someone says on social media, we're having a demonstration in a specific place at a specific time, please come, that might well be taken down. And that in terms of uh, protecting the uh, stability of the system, that's clever and it fits with a lot of the things we've been discussing. So a concern is that you can create a cascade or a polarization machine if you have like-minded people ending up in a certain place at a certain time. You, you might give a kind of green light or license to activity that had formerly been uh, pressed against by social norms. So that, that seems to be a, a, a clever strategy, I, th I think. To your point that if a society, let's say, that's at risk is imposing self-consciously through the government or through private institution, uh, political correctness, let's call it writ large, not just left-leaning institutions of higher learning, but political correctness, it, it may be that the people will feel that they've been treated disrespectfully they feel, might feel their dignity has been assaulted, and it's possible that they will uh, they'll be held to pay. And I think a lot depends on what types they are and the firmness with which they hold their convictions. So this could be modeled in, in very precise economic terms. As a first approximation, uh, if you can get away with producing, whether you're you know a government or a private employer, if, if you can get away with inculcating a norm of a certain kind, that's not a, a silly project, even if some people are going to abide by the norm while they're gritting their teeth. What's your best guess for a kind of a currently hidden position within the United States that, uh, that a social entrepreneur could kind of take advantage of? Did you have any, have any guesses for what, might the, what, what the next revolution in ideas might be? Well, it's, it's in the nature of the beast that it's going to be really hard. And that, that I think is interesting. So the reason it's going to be really hard is that first, you have a hard time knowing what's inside people's heads. Uh, Google knows probably more than any institution ever has, but it doesn't know a whole lot really compared to what's there in people's heads. And even if you know what's in people's heads, you don't know what their thresholds are for uh, acting or speaking out. They might have in their heads, you know, I care about pesticides a lot, but they might have a lot of things to do. So to do something about pesticides would take maybe a lot of social support or a uh, feeling of crisis. And even if you knew what's in people's heads, and even if you knew what their thresholds were, uh, social interactions are essential to getting something off the ground. So uh, you need the right people talking to the right people at the right time. And that's, I think, in the nature of the thing. 
not possible to anticipate. Uh, there's a terrific new paper. Duncan Watts is one of the co-authors uh, of the difficulty of predicting in real time what's going to happen in history. And th his study is actually of a much more tractable question, which is whether people in the national security area who are reporting to the United States State Department about historic events in real time, do they actually know what was a historic event? Uh, as by decades later, what became historic? And the, the answer is actually they didn't. They weren't completely random, but basically they, they were way off the mark. And Arthur Danto, the philosopher of history, actually tried to explain this in 1965, that if you're an ideal observer in real time seeing something, and I'm far from an ideal observer in response to your question, but if you had an ideal observer, he or she wouldn't know the sets of interactions and subsequent events that have to happen in order for something to become real. Now, having given all those disclaimers, I'll give you the one example, I think, where uh, it's not completely reckless to anticipate something possibly happening, and that is uh, animal welfare. And the reason is that it has some features in common with uh, gay marriage and with feminism, where there are many people who are uh, concerned about animal welfare, but they don't say so because of social sanctions, or they don't say so because they're just focused on many other things too. What we have is a potential there, given the existence of preference falsification or openness. We have the potential for a lot of people doing something, and economic uh, developments are making it more feasible. Uh, I just had my first Impossible Burger a few days ago. They're really good. And they're really good. To distinguish the Impossible Burger from the best hamburger you've ever had, I think is is hard, and I am not an investor in the company. So as the availability of substitutes becomes easier, uh, the moral conviction may come to the fore. Yeah. I was actually going to suggest that as a uh possibly one that we've seen evidence that, that it's not going to take off because kind of objections to the treatment of animals have, have been around for, for, for a long time and kind of many people sort of agree, but people are eating more more eat, more meat than ever before. And it, it hasn't really had the kind of virality or it hasn't created a social cascade over, over the last 40 years. So I was, I was going to suggest maybe this is evidence that this idea just yeah, it isn't really right for social cascade. And so possibly people should move on to move on to other issues or, or, or attempt other other approaches to try, to try to solve it because it, yeah, we, there just aren't enough people People, you know, kind of at, at every level of willingness to, to speak up that, that, that can create um, a, a full-blown uh, kind of avalanche. Well, a famous American baseball player once said predictions are hard, especially about the future. And so I'm cautious here. But uh, John Stuart Mill wrote the subjection of women a long, long time ago. And the feminist movement didn't take off in his direction for uh, decades and decades and decades and decades and decades. Uh, the idea that slavery was a bad thing was around at the time the U.S. Constitution was ratified. In fact, it was around big time. It wasn't until the Civil War that it was abolished. So the fact that the animal rights movement or animal welfare movement uh, has had, let's say, incomplete success over the last 40 years, I wouldn't take that as a as a powerful evidence that it's not one of these areas. I'm, I'm not even sure it's evidence at all, uh, given the alacrity with which movements uh, move once they start. Yeah, there, there is some evidence that, that there is a, kind of a 
suppressed opinions that, 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 that are ripe to change. If you, if you do public opinion surveys, you find that the vast majority of people say that they think it's wrong to cause farm animals to suffer. And then uh, when you present them with the inconsistency with the fact that they eat meat, they, they resolve it by saying that they think that farm animals don't suffer, but that actually the conditions are good, which is obviously kind of a, a farcical response. So I suppose it, it suggests that if you could like, yeah, really, for, I guess if you're suggesting if you could make it cheaper to be vegetarian or vegan, uh, and you could like make it very difficult for people to kind of resolve that inconsistency by, by just claiming that, that, that farming is actually humane, uh, then maybe you could get like a quite, quite a rapid change in behavior. Right. The Behavioral Insights team in the United Kingdom, with whom I'm privileged to work occasionally, has uh, easy, attractive, social and timely East as a mantra for social change. So if you make something easy, the likelihood that people will do it increases often much more dramatically than one would ever expect. So we have in the United States uh, 15 million children uh, enjoying free, nutritious school meals. These are poor kids who are entitled to the meals uh, because we have a policy that automatically enrolls them. They don't have to be in. They can opt out, but it's really easy. They're just in. And so to make Impossible Burgers or vegetarian alternatives uh, easy uh, would have a big impact. Social refers to the social norm, the S in East. A means attractive. So to have something that is not seeming kind of fussy and elitist and high-minded, but instead uh, attractive. There's something I learned very recently after the book that's closely connected with one of the themes of the book, which is Amazon sells certain packages in what's called frustration-free packaging. And uh, I know this because I get electric shavers and electric razors to take them out of normal packaging is a nightmare. So I leaped at the idea of frustration-free packaging, and it's a wonderful godsend. And then I looked up frustration-free packaging. What's it about? It's about sustainability. It's an environmental thing. Less, oh, it's all recyclable. It's less solid waste, uh, no plastic. And it looks as if the real motivation is environmental, but they don't sell it that way. They sell it as frustration-free packaging. That's the A, attractive. And T means timely, just have it so that people see the relevant thing when it matters. Uh, one way that, that I thought kind of moral circle expansions like like animal welfare or, or, or worrying about like ways that we're harming future generations uh, maybe different from previous revolutions is that you know, in the past you could have you know gay people speak up in favor of gay marriage because it affects them personally but but we're now kind of at the stage where you know at, we're talking about animals and future generations groups that kind of can't speak up for themselves and can't advocate for for their own welfare uh, do, do you think that's going to be kind of a a barrier potentially to, to getting these uh, um, moral revolutions to take off in the same way as past ones have yes. I mean, with climate change, you know, when I worked in the U.S. government, uh, we did things, including a clean power plan uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions for power plants, a fuel economy standard for automobiles, one for trucks, uh, energy efficiency standards for appliances, and the effect in reducing greenhouse gas emissions of all these things was massive. And one of the motivations for these greenhouse gas reduction initiatives was protection of future generations. And while the current administration has repealed some of these things, it hasn't by any means come close to repealing all of them. And so the future generation idea is something to which uh, current people are willing to attend. And uh, empathy is real. 
uh, with the number of white people who marched for civil rights uh, really high. Uh, the number of men who uh, have worked on behalf of sex equality is also really high. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States actually very controversially to many ruled that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination. And it was either all or almost all men who joined that ruling. I think of the nine, there were eight. And uh, a moral motivation. It was a legal judgment, but it had a moral component to it. As I was thinking about the kind of the, the social cascade model, it seems like uh, in order to have an idea kind of explode and go to saturation where almost everyone agrees with it, you kind of need to have people at every stage of willingness to speak up. So I guess you have this like number system that we've got like zeros will speak up uh, any time, no matter what. Then you've got ones who will speak up if the zeros speak up and twos who speak up if the ones speak up and so on. And it seems like if you kind of have a break in that chain where it's like we get to five, but then there just aren't many sixes, sevens, eights and nines. And then but there's a whole lot of people who would speak up, at, uh, but then they're at level 10. Then it kind of you can get stuck. You get to this hump where there's a bunch of people who agree, but then uh, you just can't you just can't get any further um, without, I guess, like some external shock to, to, to push the, the tens to start speaking out. Do you, do you think that's kind of a right way to conceptualize this? Completely. It's, of course, very stylized version of reality, and it reduces the complexity of human behavior to a few numbers. But like many stylized, it's informative. So you need for many social movements to start, you need people who will do it, even if they have no social support. Uh, Rosa Parks was one. I think Peter Singer, the uh, philosopher who works on animal rights, is another. Uh, Martin Luther King was probably a zero, meaning he'd go even if he didn't have much social support. And then there are people who will join them. They'll be their first lieutenant, uh, but they need the, to see the zero first. And then there are others who need to see the first lieutenant and the zeros. And this is how movements often develop. But you're completely right that if there are no twos or no visible twos, then the threes are just going to go about their business. And you can get stuck if you can't find fives and sixes. So often a social movement will happen, even a very dramatic one that will uh, change a country. Uh, but it wasn't inevitable. It seems inevitable in retrospect. It wasn't. It needed the fives and sixes to be visible and present. And things that we never see or, you know, music that never gets popular or movies that fail. It's a product of the fives and sixes don't uh, appear. They either aren't there or no one sees them. Yeah, I guess it kind of means that everyone is kind of essential, right? yeah, because it's like you, as soon as you break the chain, then then it's potential for the for the movement to stagnate. So uh I guess maybe I guess people should look out for like what things are they kind of the next person who can speak out on this issue to to, to push it along, and you can like seek out lots of lots of cases where you're you're the next person who's willing to to, to push it forward. Yes, fortunately, we're talking about a kind of temporal cue with people with numbers assigned to them. Societies are sufficiently large that the number of fives and sixes may be four hundred thousand, and if some of them are visible and willing to move because they see the people before them, then something will happen. If you look at what happened in the Arab Spring, by the way, it has many features in common with what we're discussing, where the US government and the UK government did not anticipate the Arab Spring. It's kind of a case study in cascade effects, both within countries and across countries where what had to be done was there were rebels, famous incident in Tunisia, which was uh, very important. Uh, there are rebels who are seen, and then there are maybe rebels, and then there are maybe, maybe rebels, and then there are the maybe, maybe, maybe rebels. 
And that's basically what happened in many countries a few years ago. Is there any uh, where in, in your model for kind of outspoken uh, activists turning people off their ideas? Uh, so it does seem like you can have kind of the wrong people who pioneer a movement and give it a, give it a bad name. And they can make it even then harder for other people to speak out because then they have to affiliate with these other people who, you know, just seem crazy or generally unappealing. Yeah, that's very important. It's, it's not in the book, but it probably should have been. Uh, I'm trying to think of examples, but it's clearly the case that if you have someone who is uh, unattractive in any one of a number of ways or is a hypocrite or something, that they can put the whole movement in disre- disrepute. I think one reason, by the way, that I'm uh, struggling to think of examples is that we focus a lot on movements that succeed, the anti-smoking movement, the feminist movement to a large extent, certainly the civil rights movement, Brexit, Trump, uh, the movement for buckling your seatbelt. These are all, you know, within memory, uh, successful movements. The movements that fail are elusive to the mind. But there's a counterfactual in which they didn't fail. And science fiction writers are very good at developing them. It takes imagination. But the fact that it's a counterfactual history, a movement that never got off the ground, may well be a product of a, let's say, the opposite of charismatic leader or a really strategically foolish leader. And then we don't know about the movement. Yeah, one one case that I've heard about is I think the the animal rights um, movement in the in the UK. Uh, the the world was really poisoned by a few people who engaged in kind of terrorist actions uh, against uh, against animal uh, labs with animal testing. I don't think they actually killed anyone, but nonetheless, it really discouraged I think moderates from getting involved because they they kind of had a violent reputation, um, and and the and kind of uh, yeah uh, uh, leveled out for a while. That's great. I mean, it's not great, but it's a great example. <laughs> Um, yeah, do, do you have any sense of how you can go out and find out about like movements that almost succeeded or, 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 or crashed? It seems like we, we need much more of a database of these and much more understanding of them. Yeah, well, um, there's some historical work, and uh, this is something I've scratched the surface on only, like of constitutions that failed, which is uh, a way in because constitutions are often statements of basic principle by people who have views that never got any, anywhere. So to look at uh, constitutions that were produced, that, that, that's one avenue. Uh, to think very inventively about movements that you know never uh, succeeded, they could be religions that, and their variants of Christianity. This is all extremely interesting. And there's, there's a very good book that uses informational cascades to think of the, to explore the network theory, to explore the triumph of, of Christianity. Some of the work on Gnosticism and the Apocrypha is very interesting in this regard. Yeah, I like the idea of uh, doing constitutions or, or I guess, yeah, theology, uh, because those ones are nicely written down or they're, they're nicely legible in a way that some other like social movements that, that, are, that are just about people's opinions and groups are, are less written down. You pointed in the book that uh, it can, if a group consists of just people, then it tends to be less polarization than if it consists of, you know, Republicans or defenders of the Second Amendment or, you know, pro-choice activists. And I guess like, given the importance of reasonableness and just, just having true beliefs for the effective altruism community, do you think we should just tend to identify as kind of people who are interested in effective altruism rather than, you know, call ourselves effective altruists, which is kind of a, a bit of a cringe term anyway? Okay, so the, the, the fact that solidarity can uh, diminish dissent and lead to more uh, polarization, more unity, more confidence, more extremism, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So if you have a a movement, let's say for human decency, 
and people become extremely unified and committed to the idea of decency. And I'm using that word as a placeholder for a value that is unambiguously good. The fact that it's citizens for human decency rather than people is instrumentally good. So uh, it's, you know, Hume, you can't get a not from it is. So the, the fact that uh, a, a particular identification or label can increase the likelihood and intensity of polarization, that, that might be a good thing. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I, I feel like with, with effective altruism, yeah, not, not falling into the trap of just having group solidarity where we all agree with one another is, is especially important uh, because the whole idea is that we'd be willing to change what we're doing and what we think in, in, in response to new evidence. And so it should be like an underlying set of principles that, that can adapt to, to new circumstances rather than a campaign that runs its course. Uh, I'll give you an example that I've thought a little bit about. I'm a, a fan of effective altruism, but not an expert. I've, I've been to one of the meetings and I admire what's being done there. Uh, there's there's an a, a online journal out of Australia called Quillette, which is often described as part of the internet dark web. And it basically is, as I read it, I'm not a, you know, read everything in it. Uh, person, but as I read it, it's trying to be empirical about questions where often uh, some kind of orthodoxy is, in the not unreasonable view of the authors, defeating empiricism. So it might be asking questions about gender difference in a way that borrows from evolutionary psychology, or it might be writing about uh, the firing of some person on a university campus in a way that reflected uh, unwillingness to listen or allow a presence of someone who had, let's say, a right of center view or right of center interest. So it's a it's a free thought entity. And I, I've been admiring of it. Uh, but I've seen recently that the people in Quillette themselves are very self-conscious that they might become their own echo chamber. And they don't want to do that. So if you are by design, let's say, uh, anti-political correctness group, there's a risk that you'll become your enemy. Mm. To their credit, they are uh, alert to that and they don't want to be that. Yeah, I know, I know you've got to run in just a second, but I've got kind of two quick questions on, on, on your career and what you've learned from it. I guess if you were starting your, your career all over again, imagine that kind of everything you have everything that you know now, but you're in your, your 18 uh, year old self's body kind of finishing high school uh, in 2019. What, what do you think your, your, your plan for having a social impact ought to be? Not to have a plan for having a social impact ought to be your plan for having a social impact. So I think if someone says, I'm going to have a social impact, that's actually self-defeating. It's a little like saying, uh, I'm going to try to get to sleep. That's not a good way to try to get to sleep. Uh, to care about something. Myself, in terms of my career, I've not focused on having a social impact. If I've been lucky enough to, it's been a byproduct of you know, pursuing interests. Uh, so my wife, who was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and really has had a social impact, uh, her advice for having a social impact, I, I think I would embrace, which is know something about something. And I think I would tell my younger self, uh, you're going to be more lucky than you could possibly have imagined. Uh, and forget what I said that, that I said that. Now go ahead, live your life. <laughs> but I'd say, do, do what you love. Is, is the reason for that that it's kind of more, more motivating and that you like throw yourself into it uh, in, in, in a bigger way? Or perhaps do, do people have good instincts about kind of what interests them does line up with, with impact? 
Well, I think if you if you try to have a social impact, you don't have anything yet that you want to have a social impact with. So if if you care, let's say, about highway safety, then if you want to have a social impact with respect to highway safety, the first thing is to learn everything there is to know about highway safety. And I, I guess the second thing is to say something that's relevant and helpful to people about highway safety or to do something with respect to highway safety. Do, 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 you th- do you think once you're an expert and kind of in the middle of your career that kind of thinking about, you know, what, what, what steps can I take to have a social impact now to, to, to fix this problem uh, is, is, is more sensible than, than when you're just a kid? I, I may have an, an idiosyncratic uh, answer to this because I've never thought, how do I have a social impact? Not once has that occurred to me. I, I, I have thought, I guess, how do I make my writing clear? And when I was offered a position in the government, I was aware that if I didn't screw up, I could have an impact. And that was not uh, uninteresting. That was you know, thrilling. And if someone asked me to help with something that has a social impact, I'm completely honored. But to think, how can I have a social impact? It, it feels a little uh, too abstract. If it's how can I help reduce highway deaths or, or what can I do about the opioid crisis? That's the, the opioid crisis, by the way, unlike the replication crisis, that's a crisis. People are dying. <laughs> so 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 I, I think I, I would focus on the issue that concerns you and uh, to have a social impact. Hitler had a massive social impact. <laughs> I should have said positive, maybe. Yeah. How uh, have your years in um, government affected your, your academic work, if, if, if at all? Thank you for asking. Um, I, I think it, by anchoring me in practical things more and in a way that's not ideal. So I think academics often do best if they let their minds go you know, to all sorts of places. Uh, I had a good friend in government who told me after two years, this is a, a, a very good academic and a very good public servant who said, get out. And he said, government ruined me. Uh, I can't think academically anymore. Uh, and it's going to ruin you. Get out. And I stayed a little while longer than he wanted, but I never forgot his words. That's, that's interesting. You think that the mindset's just too different. Yes. So there are many, many academics, this is, I think, a pretty interesting subject. Many academics I saw go into the Obama government who were terrible at it because they were really good at coming up with creative ideas, but the idea either couldn't or shouldn't be implemented. And they weren't good at doing the solid work of turning a good policy into reality. And so I tried early on to to have my ears big and my mouth small so that I would just learn from people who knew how to do government. So the people in government often whom I greatly admired, they they wouldn't be good academics. They're not writers and they're not idea people. They're uh, amazing at, at figuring out how to pull levers to do something which actually is helpful. It's a really different skill set. Well, I, yeah, I really appreciate you uh, fun, finding a full hour. Unfortunately, we're, we're out of time, but uh, you're such a prolific author. There's probably a good chance we'll uh, have another book to, to, to discuss with you maybe in a couple of years' time. 
Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Fabulous questions. Yeah. My, my guest today has been Cass Sunstein. Uh, thanks for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Cass. Thank you. If you'd like some more holiday content on related topics, some other episodes you could check out would include episode 51, Martin Gurry on the revolt of the public and crisis of authority in the information age. Episode 66, Peter Singer on provocative advocacy. Episode 88, Tristan Harris on the need to change the incentives of social media companies. And from earlier this year, episode 97, Mike Berkowitz on keeping the US a liberal democratic country. This episode of the 80,000 Hours podcast was produced by Kieran Harris back in 2019. We'll be back with another classic episode soon. In the meantime, have a great week.